Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Jeff Wald is a serial entrepreneur, board member, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and investor. His previous company, WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers, was acquired by ADP in 2018, where he served on the senior leadership team until 2020. Mr. Wald has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform eventually purchased by Salesforce.com. He served on numerous public and private boards. He's been an advisor to numerous companies and entities, including XPRIZE's Rapid Reskilling Initiative. He's the number one best-selling author of The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers in Agile Corporations. He's been named several times as one of the top 100 most influential people in staffing and staffing industry analysts. He's got a great background. He's a Harvard MBA, a uh, YPO member, Mensa. I mean, you can check out his full bio on the website, but he's definitely not only well-credentialed, but is going to be a great guest. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Well, that's a lot to sit through, but I'm glad to be here. Super excited for the conversation. Yeah, look, you know, listen, looking forward to it. And Jeff, I want to I want to talk about your personal experience with being on a management team on a on a major sale of you know of a company of mm-hmm. you know all the other stuff that you, your expertise in and around deals and give you a chance to talk about your book and all that kind of stuff. But before we get there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, ten, twelve years old. What did you want sure. to be? Because my guess is a serial entrepreneur who has sold some companies and written books and done, done some of this stuff may not have been it, but you tell me. You know, I wish, Corey, I wish I could tell you that, you know, I had lemonade stands and a snow shoveling business and things like that. I did not. Yeah, I did not. I love being the banker in Monopoly. Okay. And I really just thought I wanted to, you know, work in finance um, and have a steady job. I was not an entrepreneurial kid. I just wasn't. I It kind of came to me later in life. I love it. You know, it's it's really interesting because there is this conversation, which I think can be somewhat artificial and and frankly, in some ways doesn't matter. But, you know, there I do like there are sort of people who seem to be born entrepreneurs, some are situational entrepreneurs, some are, you know, whatever. But the point is, however, we get there. And then there's some who will never be entrepreneurs, like no matter what, sure. right? So I don't think it matters. We get there, but you're right. I mean, you know, some folks I have on have that early story of having all these uh, entrepreneurial businesses, but uh, yeah, not me, man, always not me. I remember even when I started as a banker, because I got to live out my lifelong dream. I mean, at 10, I really wanted to be a police officer, just to be clear. I mean, that's what I wanted to be. And I got to live that out because I served as a reserve officer in the NYPD for the better part of 10 years. Yes. But even when I started at JP Morgan as a little M&A banker, I didn't want to work on technology deals because things moved too quickly. I liked old school (laughs) industrial stuff. And so that's what I did. That's funny. So, yeah. So, listen, sometimes we... 
We can't, I was, I had some things in my career, which I won't go into, which certainly was not the way I thought it was going to go. Uh, one last question, looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something when you're younger, or maybe in your case, it was early in your career, but whatever it is, think of an early deal. So one of the earliest deals that I worked on, it was as an M&A banker. Yep. You know, there, there were no other deals that I did prior to joining JP Morgan. But one of the earliest deals I worked on was a company called Federal Mogul, which was an automotive supplier. And they were trying to acquire a lot of other automotive suppliers using debt. And debt-filled acquisition sprees have a pretty common thread that they tend to not work out. (laughs) That, uh, you know, the projections that you finance on often don't come to pass. And the company is not only not hitting those projections, but ends up performing more poorly with a higher debt load. And Federal Mogul did, in fact, go out of business. Or was bankrupt. I don't think it's out of business. I think it may have been restructured. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I've I've been around long enough where I started working. You know, my first legal job out of school was in in eighty five, and those were the days of the you know the, that was the decade of the LBOs, of mm-hmm. leverage buyouts. So you want to talk about and I actually talk about this goes back even when I was in law school. I was working at, at a firm where we were doing leverage buyouts for GECC. And I do talk about one deal where just even even negotiating the deal, this is sort of my like one of my formative moments in learning about negotiation as a student, you know, where the management team almost went bankrupt just because the deal might not have gone through and they leveraged everything they own just to pay the expenses on getting right. the management side LBO done. So uh yeah, it is it is high risk. Some of them work out, a lot of a lot of them don't. <laughs> so look, I don't know if it was that or a few other experiences in my life, but it had created a lifelong allergy to debt. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. All right, let's talk about the journey of how you move from a from a banker to you know getting into uh, some of these more tech and entrepreneurial kind of journeys. So, sure. So, so far sure, in your sure, story, sure. we have no indication you go that way. So what happened? It was an accident. It was just an accident. I mean, look, I was lucky enough to have J.P. Morgan pay for business school for me. Yep. And when I returned from, as you mentioned earlier, Harvard to J.P., I felt that I should have been promoted to vice president. And so I went in and I threatened the head of M&A. And I said, you need to promote me to VP, otherwise let me go. Because I couldn't quit because I owed the, would owe them a lot of money. Yeah. And he just looked at me. He was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and then a week later, he called me to his office. He said, all right, we're going to let you go. Because, you know, we're obviously not going to promote you to VP. And I got to, we're doing a round of riffs. So if you want to go, you can go. And I got to tell you, man, it was everything I could do to keep from crying in his office or in on the M&A floor. I did eventually cry when I got outside because I was bluffing. Yeah, I yeah, did not yeah. want to go. And he called I you on it. Fully bluffing, just thinking, I don't even know what I was thinking, quite frankly. I was a kid and it was dumb. Yeah. And so the job I took was with an investment firm because they were doing buyouts of industrial businesses. But the investment terms started to pivot towards more early stage deals. Okay. And as I started looking at these companies, I just became enamored with entrepreneurship. And I remember my boss pulling me aside after a meeting and saying, you spend the entire meeting telling these kids, you always refer to them as kids, how great they are and how cool it is what they're doing. Stop it. We have to negotiate with these people, but you spend the entire time telling them they're amazing. And I was like, but they are amazing. What they're doing is so cool. He said, look, if you think it's so great, you should do it. Right. Leave. Start a company. We'll back you. And so I took half of his advice and I left and started a company, but I did not take their money or anybody else's. I thought this is going to be a home run. 
I obviously should own 100% of it. And you can guess how that story ended. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how our journeys and what we learn along the way, our failures. I mean, yeah, I look back at some of the stuff. There's a story I tell sometimes about how I came out of law school and I, I worked at this, I got this great job second summer, which is what happens when you get in a good law school and they make you a permanent offer. And like, I had conditions on accepting the offer that I would like only be, you know, I mean, I'm a 20, like I look back now and I'd be like, why did they even say yeah. yes to me? I'm this 24 year old punk, but it was the times, right? They needed, you know, it was, it was a boom, boom time. We had all a great office. And I wanted them to guarantee that I would be in the labor and employment law division because that's what I wanted to do. I thought, <laughs> and I won't tell the whole story because this is about you, but bottom line is, of course, how life comes is I got that guarantee, but then I ended up finding that I didn't like it. And within a year I was doing corporate, <laughs> corporate work. So, right. you know, like, you know, so it's hysterical how, you know, how life teaches us lessons. Let that be a lesson to any listeners in their early twenties. Slow your roll, man. Slow right. your roll. Right. Just, you yeah. don't know everything. You think you do. Every time you think you know everything, take a pause and go, I don't know everything. Yeah. Maybe I should just take a breath. Yeah. And you're not that important, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very true. <laughs> All right. So before we, I want to progress the journey to that move, but let's talk about what did some of those lessons teach you and how did that impact how you did things later? Oh, I mean, how long do you have, man? Right. You know, look. The lessons from those failures, first being let go from JP Morgan and then having my first startup fail. Look, the biggest lesson was there were so many people willing to help me mm. when I got let go from JP. There were tons of people at JP Morgan that would have helped me. Right. And maybe he could have protected me and said, no, 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 he was kidding. Give him his job back. I mean, I sure, I'm sure I could have gone right back, yeah. but I didn't. I was embarrassed. There were so many people willing to help me with the first startup, but I was afraid to ask. I was, especially when the company failed, I was embarrassed. Yeah. And I will tell you, all these things are hard. Starting companies, dealing with failure, and the number of hands that reach out to us are really innumerable if we have the time and the space to look for them. And I, I didn't, but I certainly do now. And certainly I'm not afraid to ask people for help. Love that one. Love that one. You know, I remember I, I got to a point, sounds like we've had similar evolutions in a way on on just that internal work. I got to a point where I, like, you know, I, I, I always want to do it myself, right? And then I got to a point where I said, okay, I mean, maybe I can do it myself, but probably do better with others, but even so, but why, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what do I have to prove? Why struggle? Right. I mean, yeah. exactly. There's so many resources. All right. So take us from there to work market and, and getting involved with that. Well, you know, that was my, so my first startup failed. My second one was successful with the eventual sale to Salesforce. I took some time off from startup land, worked at an activist hedge fund. I still sit on the boards of some public companies from that experience. And then in 2010, I started a company called work market. Mm -hmm. enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelancers. We felt, Corey, that there was a big hole in the market, that the corporate landscape was shifting, the workforce planning landscape was shifting, the companies were engaging more people in an on-demand capacity, mm -hmm. but they lacked the systems and the processes to manage that efficiently and to manage it compliantly. Yep. And so we built the enterprise software suite that allowed them to do that. 
And there literally was nothing on the market to do it. And so we were able to raise a ton of venture over the course of Work Market's life. We raised about 100 million uh, from SoftBank, Union Square Ventures, and a few others. And we built the company up. And again, we were lucky enough to sell it to ADP, the largest HR company on the planet. And it was a great outcome for my team, for my investors. And I had an amazing experience spending time at ADP. So let's talk a little bit about, and, and, and by the way, if there's anything from Spinback, which is the one you sold to Salesforce, right, as well. But so in terms of work market, you, you raise capital. So that's a series of deals, yeah. right, that you did. And obviously that's a decision that companies make. And certainly, you know, in, in, the, in the tech space, in the high growth space, in the SaaS space, whatever, that's, that's more popular than in some of the other businesses maybe that you were doing deals in more on the manufacturing side back in the day. There are horror stories in raising capital. There are amazing stories in raising capital. There are, you know, places where things go wrong, they go right. So what does it have? I mean, you, I mean, by names, you had great, I mean, great investors, right? Great, great capital partners. Talk to us about that process and some of the things to look out for there in terms of, you know, ways to vet the right capital partners and mistakes that could be made. Well, I'll start with this in terms of getting to the right capital partners. Yeah. The cold email is mind-bogglingly dumb to me. Yeah. It just, I mean, I return the 0% of the cold emails that I get. Yeah. And I am a big angel investor now, and 0% of the cold emails that I respond, do I respond to? I respond, however, to 100% of the emails from somebody I know asking me to talk to somebody they know. Right. 100% of the time I will take that call, that email, because if it's somebody I know, they're going to go, Hey, can you do me a favor? Talk to this guy or, Hey, I think you might be interested in it. Great. Happy to do that. And you know what helps there, Corey? LinkedIn, man. Just yep. go on LinkedIn, find my profile, find who you're connected to me through. Yeah. Because there is a, there's a massive probability that we are connected through some people. And so like, it just blows my mind that people send these cold emails and they think someone's going to write them a check from that. I'm sure it's worked somewhere, but that is a minor, 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 minor outcome. So don't start trying to raise your money that way. Yep. Work your network and see who you know, who they know, and get to the right people. That's point one. So let's say you're lucky enough to get to a bunch of people and you have a choice on who you take money from. I will say my boss at the venture firm, who is an awful, awful human, just terrible, just the worst. But he had a lot of, they had a few good sayings. One of them was, you can name the price if I can name the terms. Yep. And so always be very wary of that. People really focus on the headline price, especially the valuation. Oh, we got raised money at 500 million. That doesn't tell me the whole story. What's the preference stack? What are the covenants? What are the negative? What are the things they have control over? That's more important in many, many cases. Yes. And he had another great saying, which is money comes with people attached. And so here's what I would say if you're lucky enough to have a group of people and you get to choose, because sometimes you don't get a choice. And as entrepreneurs, any port in a storm, right? It is incumbent upon us to raise the capital to keep our businesses alive. Cash is oxygen. If you run out of it, you're dead. So you got to raise money. You got to raise money. But if you have a choice, what I would tell people is ask them for references. They've definitively asked you for a ton of references and they did a bunch of work. Yep. How are you doing no work on them? Yep. And the references you want are not the people that they that made them a lot of money. Don't, you know, if they go, oh, talk to, you know, Sally. Sally invested in Sally's company and we made a billion dollars each. No, 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 no. 
Sally thinks that that person is the greatest in the world because everyone made a ton of money. Ask to talk to the person they invested in who lost all their money. Yeah. So I want to talk to John because you gave John $10 million and he lost it. And I want to know from John, what kind of partner was this investor when things were south? Because you never know who you have until things are going wrong. It's very easy to be a good partner when everything's great. What happened when John's company was failing? Did the investor sit with him and say, hey, man, I got you. Let's do what we can. I'm going to open every door I can for you. I'm going to do this for you or that for you. Or did John go, hey, man, good luck to you. Or did the investor go, John, good luck to you. I've got other portfolio companies I need to take care of. Bummer. Good luck. Right. Two very different reactions. You want the person that's going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you during those tough times. That's the investor you want. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And listen, all money is not the same. And you're right. Listen, beggars can't be choosers sometimes. And then listen, certainly if you are somebody who has a track record, you're going to have options, right? If you're a first time person, then you, you may have fewer options. But still, I mean, listen, you said it generally, money's oxygen. If you absolutely need money, you're going to go raise it. But that doesn't yep. necessarily mean for every company, if they don't have the right capital partner, they have to raise money today. There may be other alternatives, right? Sure. Like slowing the growth. That's not ideal. Strategic partners, other, other deals you can do that might get you through because, you know, obviously a bad, a really bad partner is a bad partner. But yeah, when you have these options, and I, and I love that advice. Yeah. Because when things are going great, yeah, sure. Everybody's, everybody's friends. <laughs> it's, it's all good. <laughs> and when things are going poorly, Corey, you never meet the bad partner. You never meet the guy that goes, well, I am the one that screwed that up. I mean, they were lucky I did not stay longer because I really would have buried everybody. Like you never meet that guy. You always meet the guy. Oh man, everyone else screwed it up. I was telling them what to do, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So talk to the person that uh, had a bad experience and find out what was it like. That's important. Now, even in the most positive situations with the great partners raising capital, I mean, it Raising capital, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, but I mean, it, it just changes the trajectory of a company. I mean, I've got some friends in Clyde, got a particular, you know, good friend of mine now who's really on that. He's on a cutting edge robotics kind of company, and he's been fortunate enough to raise a couple of few rounds of capital. And when it comes down to some decision making, you know, it obviously affects the decision making. He, he ran a previous company, just to use this guy as an example, for about 15 years that he started on his own and never raised capital. And it's just a different trajectory. I mean, there's an expectation of growth, which means that, you know, there's more bigger decisions, riskier decisions, that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about that experience. And then obviously you, you did it successfully and had a, had a nice exit, but how does that change the, the founder and the management's decision-making process? I think it's something that people don't think a lot about, you know, especially And we've obviously exited a very frothy VC market, but a year ago, people were really trying to get the higher and higher valuations. And I would say to founders, the only valuation that matters is your last one, right? Right? Like you can have as much money as you want on paper. I've got plenty of friends that on paper had hundreds of millions of dollars and ended up with nothing in their bank accounts. Like what matters is that last valuation. And if you raise money and you're, keep moving the bar up and up, you have to grow to meet that. Yes. And okay. I mean, with the capital, maybe you can do it, but you shouldn't take money just because you can. And you certainly shouldn't take the highest valuation money just because you can. Because let me tell you, you know who's going to get burnt by that? The common equity holders. You know who the biggest common equity holders are? 
the founders. Yep. Right. So like it, it is money comes with people attached. We talked about, but money also comes with expectations attached. And so know what those expectations are when you take that money. Know if I take this money, what is it building me a bridge to? Because I don't want to take so little that I build half a bridge. Right. I didn't get to the million in ARR I needed to raise more money. So what was the point? Know what that money expects. Or do they expect you to be able to sell the company in three years? Are they going to be in for 10? How do they have more capital behind it to support you if you don't make your goals? Blah, blah, blah. So you got to really have that dialogue. It's not a difficult conversation to have, but it is surprising as to how few people have it. Yeah. Right. I always say to all my friends, you should know exactly what your manager expects from you. If you take money from somebody, they're now your manager, right? Their manager in the context that they're on the board, you know, you now are a fiduciary for them. Yes. And so what are their expectations? Because you always want to exceed your manager's expectations. But in order to exceed them, you need to know what they are. Love it. Talk to me about for you, if you don't mind, you know, I often talk about the internal journey, the mindset shift, the body of work that we need to do as entrepreneurs, as deal makers, because it's, it's, we can talk about valuations and deal structures and capital partners all we want, but very often, whether we are in this position or even people in careers work for people, what limits us, right, is our own. We talked about a little earlier when you and I were arrogant 25-year-olds, 20, right, and the impact of that. But at every level, when we need to raise up, right, there, there's some usually some internal body of work that we need to do to step into that higher role. Talk to me about anything that comes up for you around that conversation in terms of your journey. Well, I'll tell you this, as a part of our Series C for work market, my board made me get a coach mm. and they felt that I, you know, was not the best manager and they were absolutely correct. I mean, not even remotely close. I, and, you know, we don't need to go into all of my failings here on your show, <laughs> but uh, look, being on that journey of self-improvement, having that growth mindset, knowing you don't have all the answers, like these all sound great and they sound easy to do. They are very, very hard to do in practice. Yeah. And my coach would always say, I am a recovering fixed mindset, right? The opposite of a growth mindset is fixed mindset. Yeah. And he'd always say recovering, right? Like he still has work to do and he does this for a living and he's as right. good a person as I know. But the journey that I went through him and the work we did together helped me become a better manager, a better leader, a better person. Yeah. And it is probably the best thing that came out of work market for me, which is kind of crazy to say, given, you know, what we achieved from a monetary standpoint, but that journey was unbelievably important for me in all aspects of my life. I love that. And I, and I appreciate you being willing to talk about that because I think that's something that folks sometimes overlook or underestimate or don't realize. And it also shows that you had good, good partners and good board members because they, they didn't say, hey, you're out of here. They said, hey, we there's certain aspects. I'm, I'm sure there were certain aspects that we were very happy with, certain aspects yeah. you can improve upon. And hey, we think you should get a coach. I mean, that that's the, those are the kind of kind of partners you want, right? I was unbelievably fortunate with the investors, board members, advisors that we had at Work Market, without question. Yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So let's talk about the decision to exit, right? I mean, that's always a decision on on when, what's the right timing, what's the opportunity. You know, it's interesting. I mean, in, in a funded company, to some extent, there's sort of a path and a rhythm and 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 timing that comes at least theoretically with this that's different than companies that aren't that aren't funded because you you raise certain capital, there's mm-hmm. expectations a certain return from from the but yeah, but but still it's not that's not locked in stone and market conditions things change and there's always a decision sure. on, hey, is this the right time and is this the right buyer? Obviously without disclosing anything confidential, but when did that come into play? What had you sure. make that decision at that time to 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 exit? Well, I'll tell you this, Corey. And I'll tell you what I said to the board as we were making this decision, which is, this is just math. We have an offer from ADP at X. Yep. The investors are willing to put another 25 million in, which would have given us another two years. Yep. There is the probability that we would increase our revenue trajectory or hold the revenue trajectory. We were growing, you know, 70% a year. There's a probability that we wouldn't grow that quickly. There's a probability that the capital markets move, that there aren't that there weren't that many buyers for work market, right? This is not a company that a ton of different entities could have bought. Yep. And so, and then there was the dilution that we would take for taking work capital. So what's the probability that X is going to grow to at least 1.5X to make up for the dilution and the time value of money, and then maybe a little bit more for the risk associated with it. Yep. And I have zero regrets as to what we did. Because that math to me was very clear. I think ADP played a fair price, not an excessive price. Yep. ADP may have a different point of view, but <laughs> the company, the work market is actually very well with an ADP. So I, I think Excellent. that they're happy. But again, I wouldn't pretend to know because I've been gone for two years. I left in September of 20. My lockup period ended. Yep. And so, you know, look, we didn't go looking for ADP. It's not like we hired a banker and they searched the world over an yep. ADP won a bidding process. Now, it is true that we hired a banker and ADP would, did win a bidding process, but ADP launched that process by making an offer for work market. Right. right. I had gotten to know the team at ADP. I think that as a, one of the 10,000 different jobs a founder and leader of a company has is to keep one eye on, again, of a thousand eyes on what the potential exits are. And so I always made sure I was in touch with the heads of corp dev and anyone that could be a potential buyer for work market. And so I'd gotten to know the team at ADP. They kept coming by just to check in and, and talk. And uh, I'll spare you the whole story, but uh, you know, went to dinner with the president of ADP, head of corp dev, and uh, they took a piece of paper and they slid it across and they said, that's our number. I looked at them. I'm like, seriously, this is how we're doing this. (laughs) All right, cool. So I opened the number. I put it back down. I said, okay, we'll get back to you. And they said, that's it. And on the one hand, my answer externally was, gentlemen, I am one member of a five-member board of directors. While I am the largest share, individual shareholder, yep. it is not my decision. We will meet collectively and come back to you with a response. My internal response was, oh, this is freaking awesome. Right. And I was freaking out. But, uh, you know, that, that was the process. They came and found us. 
and then we hired a banker and then they won the auction, the auction anyway. They were not thrilled when I said we're hiring a banker. They thought they could preempt a process. And I said, well, I can appreciate how you're not thrilled, but I'm not solving for your excitement <laughs> and your feelings here. Yeah. I mean, listen, that it is the, uh, the old advice, right? If you're a seller, you want to run a process. If you're a bar, bar you want to get an off market deal, right? That's, that's, of course, know. of course, of course. <laughs> you know, but I will say, I will tell you this, man, the ADP team could not have been more professional, more thorough, more thoughtful. They looked the world over for an entity to help them. I mean, look, ADP is the best in the world at managing full-time workers, whether yep. it's the payroll of full-time workers, the human capital management software for full-time workers, and they wanted something for the on-demand worker. And they looked the world over and they came back and they were just very clear that there was nothing else in the world, which I knew, you know, there was no one else that could do what we did. And so they felt they needed to have it and they made the right efforts to get it. And a nicer group of people and a smarter group of people I have not met. Yeah. And listen, that I, like, I don't know the, the specifics of the situation, but obvious to me, looking from the outside, that's a classic situation. I'm sure the first conversation they, they had was build or buy, right? Cause that's always a question. hundred percent. have, right. Maybe we can build this. We do. Yep. We do. Obviously they made a, a, a choice that it was better to buy, which is very often the case for big companies because it accelerates the process significantly. You know, maybe they, they build it well, maybe they don't. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and for them ultimately with what they can leverage it to, even if they're paying more than any other buyer or that, you know, you thought it makes sense for them. So they made the bill buy decision, say buy, then they scouted out to see what is there out there to buy. And then they, they found you guys, or maybe they just knew of you guys. Sometimes mm -hmm. it works where it seemed, but it's somebody doing something they're like, whoa, okay, that's an opportunity. Should we, well, I'll tell you this. Can we, or can we build it? You know, they actually came up with a thesis on their own okay. and then looked the world over Got it. and found us. However, I will say this on the build versus buy. Two quick thoughts. One is the people that want to build, when you do get internally, they still let you know. There were a number of ADP execs that would come up to be like, you know, I really argued against this. I thought we should have built it on our own. I'm like, why are you telling me this? What? Okay, you're a jerk. Thank you. Like, what, what was your point? Like, right. you just annoyed right. me. It's water but under the I bridge. What, what, what are we going to do with that now? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. Like, did you want me to respond to that? Like, <laughs> sorry. But the more important thought is this. I think everybody is aware that the valuations in the venture market keep going up. And yes, there's been a pullback, but there's still not a pullback to like sanity. And I think everybody knows that the corp dev people at big companies sit there and go, wow, those valuations are getting ridiculous. But every now and again, they still have to make a buy because yep. sometimes something strategic or blah, blah, blah. I don't think what people appreciate is the build versus buy conversation. Once the corp dev person identifies the opportunity and starts to have that conversation, I don't think people appreciate that the build is decreasing in cost. Mm -hmm. So for a company like ADP, 10 years ago, ADP never could have built something like work market. They just couldn't. I don't mean any disrespect to the teams that were there at the time and whatever. And obviously they felt almost five years ago that they couldn't build it. That conversation happened. But I'll tell you this, based on the people that came up to me, it was close. Mm -hmm. Now they could build it. They have gotten so much better and that is not just a compliment to ADP because they happen to have excellent leadership and they've massively increased their technology departments and things like that. It's a commentary on com companies all over the world. 
right? Whether it's the proliferation of coding skills, whether it's open source frameworks, whether it's no and low code forms, the ability to create your own stuff has massively decreased in price. Yeah. And so venture valuations going up and build costs going down are leading to a huge mismatch that might leave a lot of companies that are venture backed without a lot of exit opportunities, certainly not at the valuations that they hope for. Yeah. Yeah. Very, the very interesting point. People are talking about some of the other headwinds that, you know, right now with interest rates and inflation and well, stock market or whatever, but that's a real interesting point. I mean, with technological advancement and, you know, everything else that, yeah, I mean, companies are always making big companies that, that build by decision. And when, you know, you know, it's like anything else, right? If the, sure, if the gap is, then you're going to see a time where they move what towards build and then it'll probably shift back. I mean, that's the way, that's the way these yeah. things go, right? Interesting stuff. Great. So now you're sort of on the other side of things, being an angel investor. Uh, I, I'm always interested when I found in my life, I, when I was an employee at, you know, big law firms in the city and, and I wanted, and I'm, I said, I can open my own firm. I, you know, I knew I could do it better because of all these horrible things that they did. And, you know, and frankly, for me, a lot, a lot of it, I was right on a lot of it. I was like, oh yeah, I, I can do it better. And then there were some things where I'd look and say, oh, now that I'm on the other side, I understand why they, they did it that way. So I'm interested to see now that you are on the investing side and I don't know, maybe you were doing some investing as well while you were, I'm not sure when that started, but certainly yeah. now you're focusing more on the angel investing side. Is there anything like that, that you sort of learned as, you know, being an investor now versus the uh, capital raising on uh, the capital raising side of things? That is it's it's a really, really good question. I will say this. I think the lessons I learned are more internal than, than macro. I learned I'm just not very good at it. Mm. Like, I, and it's not that I'm not smart enough. It's not that I don't have relationships. I just don't have the time to do it. And the notion of someone really specializing in an industry, which I don't, I make angel investments all over the map. Someone specializing in a, stage of a company and I don't, I've made investments all over the map. Somebody specializing in investing and I don't, I, my time is spread really, really thin. Mm -hmm. And so my movement in investing has been to become an, an LP in venture funds. I think it's important that people have exposure to venture investing. I think it's a smart portfolio approach, depending on where you are in life and your assets and things like that, obviously. But for someone like me, I want to have 20 to 30% of my net worth exposed to this space. So it's easier for me to deploy that capital to venture funds and more specifically to venture funds with a specific focus. So I can develop a macro thesis and say, you know what, cybersecurity, this is a forever war, but my ability to discern who's a winner, who's a loser, what the value chains are, who's the right tech and blah, blah. I have zero ability to do that. Right. But you know what I can do? I can go to some friends and I can say, who's got a great cyber fund? I can talk to a few people. I can get some recommendations. I can talk to their LPs. And then I can make an allocation of X number of dollars or Y number of dollars there, as opposed to making... 15 or 20 angel bets yeah. on my own. Yeah. So I've got a cyber fund. I've got a marijuana fund. You know, I've got a fund focused on enterprise software. I've got funds focused on the future of work. Those are theses that I can get behind as on a macro side. And I can let the people that actually spend their entire day thinking about it, make allocations because they're going to be better at it than me. Yeah. Yeah. Although that being said, I actually have a pretty good track record as an angel investor. <laughs> 
just <laughs> not as good as some of the funds that I've invested in. Got it. Well, talking about some of these trends, the future of work is certainly one that, I mean, you wrote a book that <laughs> on that, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you this. People tend to romanticize how work was. Yeah. They tend to complain about how work is, yeah. and they tend to be very fearful about how work is going to be. Yeah. And that is despite the fact that almost uninterrupted over the last 200 years, since we really have the beginning of what we call a job, almost uninterrupted over that period of time, work has gotten easier, more lucrative, and safer. Mm. And so the idea that it's suddenly in the future, all the jobs are going to go because of this, or, oh my God, everyone's going to be an on-demand you know, right, worker. Yeah, robots, robots are going to take, take AI is going to put us all out of, yeah. you know, but robots going to take all our jobs, whatever it is. It just, I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying I don't have any data to support the idea that it's suddenly going to. Yeah. And so I think it's super interesting. That's what led me to write the book is that everyone freaks out about it, but they freak out without any context to history, any context to the data in the world of work, and any context into how companies actually do labor force planning. Mm. And when you look at those three lenses, I'm not saying it creates a crystal ball. But what I am saying is, is you have a well-reasoned point of view on the future of work, which is the future of work tends to look a lot like the present day of work, just a little bit better. Right. That is what tends to happen. So, you know, we can go through example of example, industry by industry, job function by job function, but the future of work, I think, is still very, very bright for workers in all industries and in all sectors. Mm. And listen, I, I, I do think one of the things that as people were, I mean, first of all, you got you, a lot of people just are afraid of change, period, right? And a lot of people don't just don't like uncertainty, even like it's one thing if they know what the change is, but if they don't know what the change is, right, that's even worse. I mean, I remember when I left big law practice and started my own law firm with no clients, right, at five and a half years, six years out of school, all these people told me I was crazy, right? I was leaving was what was going to be a little over six, you know, a hundred some odd thousand dollars, which... You know, it's good money for a lot of people now, but certainly in nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety two, was real yep. was real money. And then, uh, you know, a year and a half later, when I had an, an office down on Wall Street with a view of Statue of Liberty, and we had a party, and everybody came, they all tell me how they knew I'd be successful, but they didn't remember telling me I'd be crazy because, of course, by the time they came and saw the nice office, they it was real to them; they could see that it was tangible, whereas before right. it wasn't. Right? That's just human nature. So that's I think that's part of it. But then also, there's the micro micro conversation. Right. Because mm -hmm. what you're talking about, and I 100% believe in it, is that is, is, is on a macro level, that's, that's the way it trends. But what happens in, in, in those macros is that there's disruptions on a micro level. Right. What, no so, so somebody works in a particular industry that's going to get disrupted by some technology or change or whatever, and maybe they'll lose, have a risk of losing their job yeah. in that moment. They're not excited that the macro trends are, are exactly what you said. You are right? unbelievably correct on this. You know, I, just made a statement two minutes ago with say all industries, all workers. That is that is obviously an incorrect statement. I should not have made this statement. Most industries, most workers is what I should have said. Because there are winners and losers in this. Without yep. question, there are jobs that automation will cause a net decrease in the number of those jobs to the point that in pick a number, five years, 10 years, 20 years, those jobs are all gone. Yep. That is without a chance, without a doubt, possible for a number of different specific job functions. The fact that 
all jobs are increasing, the fact that the standard of living continues to rise, the fact that the number of hours work continues to fall is no solace to somebody who in the town where the factory closed. Yeah, of course not. And I will say this, I am very optimistic about the future of work. The thing that I fear is exactly what you're alluding to, which is we as a society have done a very poor job of supporting the people, the families, the communities where change has occurred yes. to help them reskill, retrain, maybe move to the places, the industries, the skills where jobs are growing yeah. because jobs will grow. We just have to make sure that we can move people into the right jobs. And historically, we have done a terrible job of this. And we do it to our societal detriment because people that go through this, it tends to lead to a lot of social and economic dislocation. And that can cause, look, in some of the past industrial revolutions that led to actual revolutions. That's right. right? There's blood on the streets from these things. So we haven't done a good job of this in the first three industrial revolutions. I won't go too much into what the book kind of says, but as we think about this fourth industrial revolution, robots and AI, we, to our peril, do not think about those being left behind and help them. It is in everybody's interest. It is so much cheaper to do a job retraining program than to pay someone to be on disability or unemployment or welfare. Like it's not even remotely close. It's the best ROI investment we can make as a society, one of the best. So that is the thing that worries me. Not that there will be no jobs, but that we'll do a poor job again at supporting those being left behind. You know, I, I so agree with that. Was, you know, I, I, I raised it and it's, it's mind boggling to me because you're absolutely right. And, and, and it also creates these bad incentives and horrible fight. You know, I, I remember we used to, when I was back working at big law firms in, in, in the city, one of our clients, we used to represent a bunch of uh, newspapers, right? And that was in my first year when I was doing some of that labor management stuff before right. I moved to the corporate deal stuff. And at that time, it was when they were shifting from hot press to cold press, right? From basically moving from hot press to digital. And they had all these pressmen, as they would call them mm -hmm. back then, who, because the union contracts, continued to have jobs and literally showed up for years without ever right. doing any work because there was no hot press going on anymore. But and, and listen, I get it. Like people may jump to a quick judgment, anti-union, anti-whatever, right? I mean, from a societal and economic and efficiency point of view, and, and even for the people, I mean, who who wants to really go in and, and, and not have any valuable work, right, for right. that person? How do they feel about themselves? But what happens is because we don't have these good programs to retrain people and give them other opportunities, then somebody like a union who's doing their job to try to protect sure. their workers digs in and, and keeps these people on the payroll. Now, now the company's got to pay these people to do nothing, right? They're, they're not having meaningful work, which is not fulfilling for them. And we have all the, and I can give you other examples like that, but you know, we, we have all these bad incentives that happen because of the lack of ability to, I think, I mean, if you really ask people at their core, these guys who came in and did nothing every day, you think, I think, 90% of them would prefer to be retrained into productive work than, than get, be getting paid to do nothing. Every bit of data and survey we have tells us exactly that, mm. right? People don't want a handout. And you know what? That was a handout. They want a job. They want to add value. They want purpose. And so, look, those things are tremendous suboptimalities and we can do better. There is no question that we can do better. And unions play a very important role 
in our economic landscape for a host of reasons. And as with all actors, there are good parts and there are bad parts. So before I ask you my final couple of questions, is there anything else you have going on that that, that you want to talk about, let us know about, or whether it's any any particular endeavors of yours or trends you see or things you want the audience to know? I will tell you this. My non-competes with ADP all expired a couple months ago. Uh-huh. And so I am now thinking about my next startup. And so it is going to be back into the HR tech space. Right. And so I've got no big announcements to make here yet, Corey. I'm, I'm still We're not breaking still news like, or anything on the deal. Not breaking podcast. news yet. But uh, any CHROs or anybody that's thinking about HR tech, always happy to, uh, to have a conversation about what I'm thinking about as I continue to shape it. Because I will tell you this, I start off every conversation with, this is an idea. Ideas are designed to be ripped apart. Yeah. Ideas are designed to be iterated and improved. I don't have any beliefs yet. Beliefs are hard to change. Yes. Ideas are easy to change. And so I always go on with ideas and I don't pretend that my ideas are the best. And so I always say to people, nothing will make me happier than you saying, wow, Jeff, that's a really dumb idea. (laughs) Now, it's not overly helpful if you just say that and then walk out the door. You need to tell me why you think it's a dumb idea (laughs) so I can help change it. (laughs) Just saying it's dumb and leaving is not a selfless thing. But uh, I will tell you, I love this, this part of the process, the ideation having conversations with people immensely smarter than me and getting their thoughts and views. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at in my process right now. Well, listen, that, that's, there's a lot in that statement, including the fact that we've clearly become come full circle in the beginning. You were this kid that had no entrepreneurial ventures, went into a, a job in finance and, and now that's now you operate the way you operate. And it's about, you know, the ideas and moving them far the next time, of course, I mean, that's, that's what, entrepreneurs do is right. They can, in this case, when the restrictions run out, right, it's time to <laughs> time to build something new. So you've definitely come full circle to, to become a, a, real, a real entrepreneur by far, that's for sure. So listen, if people want to talk to you about the opportunities in mm-hmm. that space, or they want to just know more about you, find out about the book or anything else you're up to, what's the best place for them to go? Well, there are only really two places to go. One is LinkedIn, which is the only social network I really use. Yep. And the other is the website domain that I bought in 1998, jeffwald.com, which <laughs> sat completely dormant for about 20 years before <laughs> I finally, actually 24 years before I finally put stuff on up on it earlier this year. So jeffwald.com has got everything Jeff Wald related in terms of the books, in terms of speeches, in terms of getting in touch. I love that. Well, listen, you were smart enough very early on to go, you know, everybody, I mean, it's the wisdom now you bet, you better jet, grab the dot com for your name. Right. But then not, you know, oh yeah, then, all then, the other you were early. out there are totally screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all bummed out. So Jeff, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from, for all people from oppression around the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Well, as a fiercely patriotic American, the first thing that comes to mind is the freedom that we are granted in this great country, freedom of religion and freedom of speech and all these things. And the first thing that comes to mind is how grateful I am that I was born here and I get to work and live and build a life in the United States of America. Jeff Wald, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. 
I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.